I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to a very special Livewire podcast extra. What you're about to hear is the living room sessions recorded in an actual living room in Portland, Oregon. What you're about to hear is Dave Weish from Powell's Books, and he's going to be talking to Michael Perry, the author of Coop, and Laura Dave, the author of The Divorce Party. So grab your wine and take a listen. Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to Kate's house. And... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I have here with me today uh, the, uh, we'll talk about this later, but he is one of the uh, upper Midwest's leading homespun humorists. Uh, His name is Michael Perry, and he has written three books, the newest of which is Coop, which you should all read, um, because it's charming and and kind of funny, and um, it really presents so many contradictory ideas and, um, I don't know, lifestyle choices in, in America, just things to think about. It's kind of, I don't know, a thought-provoking, funny, and light-hearted book um, is my impromptu description. And that's why we have the author here to do a better job. Um, <laughs> but I want to start uh, in the beginning of your book, the very beginning. It might have been the first page. Um, you write, I have reached the point in my life, this is your third book, where every other thing I say is something I've said before. So I was wondering, um, what have you said the most times, out loud or in writing? Well, I did say in there that I found that for some reason about every two years I try to describe the smell of dirt. And Maybe you should try? I, well, I don't know why I keep trying to describe that over and over. What I wrote in the book is that I, I was working one day in my office and I um, – the clouds parted, as they often do, and, and I was struck with this absolute gem of an aphorism of pure truth. And I sat down, and I roughed it out, and then I polished it, and I rewrote it, and I polished it, and I polished it until it was perfect pearl of wisdom, and I incorporated it into my new book. And then the next day, I was going through some old notes and found that I'd written the exact same thing about six years previous. <laughs> so... That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, I tend to repeat myself on a regular basis. So at this point, I just say, if you read something of mine and you've read it before, just don't bother me about it. I've told you up front, that's what I'm doing. I'm (laughs) repeating myself. And I hope that's a stirring uh, motivation there to buy the books we have for sale out there. (laughs) 
probably all of them. So you can see how he repeats himself and how he just totally just changes it 10 degrees each time and gets a new book out of it. Um, I want to quote you directly here. Um, this is also near the beginning of your book, but I think it really sets um, the context maybe for both you and the setting of your book. You write, when I was five years old, dad was remodeling the barn and I decided to help. It was deepest winter. This is in uh, Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin. And But I bundled up and trekked outside, determined to pitch in. Dad handed me a hammer. First thing I did was lick it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much the story of my life. And um, the world is a frozen hammer handle, and I licked it. And... Um, as I said in the book, I felt instead of the usual taste of steel that I somehow really liked, um, I felt this instantaneous crinkle, and then I yanked the hammer loose and spent the rest of the morning in the house reading comics and licking the raw spot on my tongue. So, But, yeah, that's a metaphor for the way I function on a regular basis. This goes 10 below, and that's a steel hammer handle. Maybe I ought to lick it. And... Uh, I don't know what exactly what sort of wisdom you're looking for in that other than, you know, where I come from, there are just certain truths. Like if you can see your breath, don't lick the pump handle. Um, you know, never, never, pay, never pay top dollar for a milk cow referred to by the previous owner as old three faucet. Um, yeah, that's a math joke. And. If you're from the city, you're going to have to think about that for a while. <laughs> and probably the most important piece of wisdom I can share tonight is, uh, and it's not in the book, so it, this, I'm not pushing the book even. I'm just trying to, to help you, um, <laughs> is uh, never, ever stand behind a sneezing cow. Um, <laughs> and if I got to explain that to you... <laughs> Uh, basically, it's a situation involving several of the properties of physics, including contents under pressure, uh, ballistics, and the path of least resistance, and, of course, inertia, although in this case you might refer to it as minertia. Um, if it has ever happened to you standing behind a sneezing cow, it has happened to me, by the way, uh, and it is a jaw-dropping experience. <laughs> Although that would not be your best move. All right, so you're going to need the microphone for this one. Take time to catch up. It's fine. Um, all right, I want, I'm going to give you, I'm going to actually, let me see. I'm going to take out my um, phone, and I won't name the brand. Um, it starts with I. No, it doesn't. It totally doesn't. But it has a functionality on here where there's a, uh, there's a timer, and so I want to use the timer. Yeah, I'm going to put the stopwatch on you. Um, so I want you, I'm going to give you, let's say, 20 seconds. Okay. And I want you to name I'm not a 20-second 20 kind of guy. Okay. Sorry. Can I have that for a second? Perhaps. Yeah. You, you can have it for 20 seconds. Okay. No, no. I only want it for two or something. Um, I want you in 20 seconds, I'll start it as soon as I stop talking, to name as many siblings as you can. Go. Oh, uh, Jed, Joe, John, Brenda, Marie, Phyllis, Raya, Eric, uh, Don, Magena. Where am I at? <laughs> That's only 10 seconds. Eva, Eva was my first sister. Uh, let's see. Fred, um, Jerome, Marianne. All right. 
are you going to do about all those people you left out? <laughs> well, they've moved far, far away, most of them. And I changed their names to protect the innocent. And, and, and furthermore, I know you think that you kind of got me there, but how do you even know that I didn't make up all those names? <laughs> Well, I don't, actually. And in fact, there's a great book that I'll pimp here called The Hundred Brothers by Donald Antrim, which I couldn't help thinking of. It's a spectacularly funny novel uh, that I would just recommend to anyone. But the reality is your parents did take in foster children. And and you, I don't know the exact number, but they took in more than 100 foster children. Well... I write nonfiction, and the problem with writing nonfiction is that occasionally your mom reads your books and corrects your nonfiction. And actually, the jacket copy says they took in over 100. My mom saw the jacket copy and made me change the text, which is she quit keeping track at 66. Um, I think they've probably hit 100, but she uh, won't let me actually put that. But, yeah, my parents started taking in. I was their firstborn, and apparently they took one look at me and said, you know, let's adopt. Um, <laughs> And from that point on, they just started taking in, in children, and they have taken in uh, a large number of kids. They've adopted several, many. Uh, they took in a lot of foster children who were severely uh, mentally and physically disabled. I grew up in a house where we gave uh, G-tube feedings and nasogastric feedings right at the table. Um, I was a bachelor for 39 years, but I changed a lot of diapers in my day, even though I was a bachelor. So it was a, it was a great education uh, for us to see. We, I was privileged in that my parents had a, a loving marriage. That my father always treated my mother with reverence. So I was a lucky kid. I had a solid home. But these other lives that came into ours were a, a very good titer because they taught me that not, all was not well in the world. And my parents tried to give them comfort. And you're, so you were, you're a bachelor for 39 years. You're married now. And you, you married into one child, and you've had one child of your own. So you have a lot of catching up to do. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I was a bachelor for 39 years. And then one day I went to the library, and I met a woman. And I've told the American Library Association that they're free to use that quote in all their promotional. <laughs> I think that'd look. I think that'd look terrific on a bookmark. Um, but then I met this uh, woman, and, and I got married, and she had a three-year-old when I met her. So I went from zero to daddy in less than sixty seconds, and. It's been great. Uh, I write in the book about the challenges of becoming a dad, and uh, I'm already behind. You're right. I have a daughter who uh, she wants a horse, and so I told her she could have a guinea pig, um, and I got her this guinea pig, and I had to buy hay for it. And uh, good guinea pig or good horse hay where I'm from costs 170 bucks a ton. And I went to the store and bought guinea pig hay and found out that guinea pig hay, if you do the math, and I did, calculates out to 18560 bucks a ton. And so I went home and gave her a big speech about how this was the last guinea pig hay because you know how much horse hay costs? 170 bucks a ton. You know how much guinea pig hay costs? 18560 bucks a ton. And she waited about three-quarters of a second and then said, oh, well, then we better get a horse. <laughs> Uh, you say uh, from horses and guinea pigs, uh, chickens are the new black. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just my neighbors? No, no. Uh, chickens are everywhere. Uh, and urban chickens are coming on. I'm very excited about this. Um, 
I wrote a book called Coop, having no uh, idea, really, that this whole thing was happening. But now I'm, I'm on this big book tour, and everywhere I go, I have people from the city wanting to talk chickens. Everybody knows about Backyard Poultry Magazine, and we talk. We t- <laughs> See, they're here, and then they, you go and get the mail, and you get those little cardboard boxes with holes in it, and you hear peeping noises coming. It's, it's fabulous. I, I think that the whole chicken movement is long overdue. Um, best egg of your life? Best egg of my That's a personal question. <laughs> Are we not friends? <laughs> the, the best egg of my life was the last egg. It always is. Okay, okay. Um, so there's a lot of, I, I don't know how many people here are from the upper Midwest, but there is a lot of friction between the states. I would say not a lot based on the reaction to the sneezing cow material. <laughs> They're just shy. Um, if so, there's a lot of st- point being if you've driven through there, even there's a lot of state pride at stake um, across the borders. And I'm wondering if it came down to it, and if it were a matter of state pride, let's say it was mandated by governments, governors, whoever it was, if you had to fight uh, Garrison Keeler, who is the toughest homespun humorist of the Upper Midwest? <laughs> well, that's a that's a tricky question because Garrison has I've got. Garrison's got better accountants and lawyers than I do, so I got a. I know that when I recorded an interview at Minnesota Public Radio, I looked around. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's the most amazing public radio building in all of America. And I said to the producer, "This place is amazing," and she said, "Yeah, we call this the house that Garrison built." And uh, I just can't compete with that. So I, I do think I could take him at this point. I mean, he's you know. <laughs> He's a, he's an old fellow. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the arena would be, but if it's just, I'd like to take him on a, in, a, in a demolition derby on a Saturday night at the Red Cedar Raceway dirt track. Yeah, I think yeah, I could take him. Prepared? Please, of course. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, so last thing, I heard you read at Powell's last night, and I heard that you told a story that was uh, particularly funny and or entertaining. I didn't hear the story about Christopher Moore. And this ties into something that I was going to talk about later, um, not with you, but uh, <laughs> we've got so much to talk about anyway. Um, but so what is it? Could you mind telling the Christopher Moore story? Is this how I met Christopher Moore? I don't know. You told the story last night at Powell, and someone said to me, he told the story. Wow. I, 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 it's all a haze. You know, I was uh, d- d- just the fact that I was at Powell's had me overwhelmed. That's the Mecca. Every, every writer dreams of going to Powell's. So I was probably still floating. Um, but I met Christopher Moore at a party on the Fox Studios lot in L.A. Uh, because, as you may or may not know, uh, Uncle Rupert owns HarperCollins and I'm currently signed with harper collins and so they had a big party for all their authors on the fox studio lots and they trucked us all over and the truth was that most of the authors there were famous people jamie lee curtis was there and uh, michael Crichton was there and i found myself at one point a nice farm boy from chippewa county wisconsin uh standing next to and taking cheese balls uh from the table with tracy lords which is a real you could call that a juxtaposition um, Tracy Lords was there, and then I went to the restroom and quite appropriately ran into 
Heidi Fleiss coming out of the restroom. So, uh, but anyway, there, there, there was just Dr. Drew, Dr. Drew was there, all these really famous people. And so I eventually just took my cheese balls and eased back into the corner next to quite literally a potted plant. And I was eating cheese balls and I looked up and there was another guy there in jeans and a t-shirt looking scruffy and lost. And it was Christopher Moore. And we bonded in that moment. And we've been friends ever since. Thank God for cheese balls. Cheese balls. Well, you, you know, if you're going to strike up a conversation with Tracy Lords, you have to start somewhere. Cheese balls is as good a place as any. <laughs> All right. So we, you were maybe going to read just a little bit to give people a taste of your book. All right. Well, maybe I'll just read the first two paragraphs of the book since it talks about chickens, which you seem to have a, quite a strongly held interest I don't in. Have any chickens yet, but <laughs> well, you can always dream. Yeah. Oh. So the book is about uh, my wife and I moving to the farm and, and getting ourselves some chickens. It also, uh, because it's a memoir, I go back and revisit my childhood on my parents' farm. So there's a little bit of both in these two paragraphs. At the earliest edges of my memory, my father is plowing and I'm running behind him. I see my feet going pat, pat, pat over the soil. I see my father, left hand on the wheel, right forearm braced against the fender, head turning back to check the depth of the plow, then forward to gauge his progress. The soil is red and sandy in the high spots and dark and loamy in the low spots where it curls from the plowshares like strips of licorice, leaving me this square, shin-deep trough in which to travel. I trail the sound of the little tractor, so close to the ground I can hear the soft plop of the overturned clods. Now and then the plow slices the soil so cleanly that a chubby white grub drops into the furrow unscathed. The grubs are translucent white, their black guts dimly visible, as if through rice paper. Grackles and cowbirds flock the plow, pecking through the new-turned dirt. The grub will not last long. There is my father on his underpowered Ford Ferguson, and there is me trotting right behind him, and there is God above, looking down as I run the straight groove of the furrow, my life laid out on a line drawn in the earth. In the company of our six-year-old daughter, Amy, my wife, Annalisa, and I have recently moved to a farm. I'd like to present some sort of grand agrarian charter, but the whole deal is predicated mainly on the idea of having chickens. We are not alone in this. These troubled times seem to have precipitated a foul renaissance. Mail carriers labor under a groaning load of multicolored hatchery catalogs, the latest issue of backyard poultry, and perforated containers that peep. Drop the term chicken tractor in mixed company and behold the knowing nods. The online world is alive with Subaru-driving national public radio supporters. You know who you are. <laughs> Trading tips on eco-friendly coop construction and the pros and cons of laying mash. My NASCAR-loving brother-in-law tenderly mines a box of chicks beneath a heat lamp in his garage. My biker bar bouncer turns Zen Buddhist pal Billy and his wife, the certified nursing assistant, are building their second backyard coop with an eye toward expanding into ornamentals. Anecdotal evidence to be sure and a drop in the colonel's bucket, but something is afoot. The subject of chickens was raised between my wife and me fairly early in our courtship, and 
has sustained us. We are enthused by... We are enthused by the idea of fresh eggs, homegrown cocovan, and, at least until butchering day, a 24-hour turnaround on the compost. In addition, it is my, it is my long-standing opinion that, entertainment-wise, chickens beat TV. Well, thank you. Um, he's actually here. We have plenty of his books, Coop, and he will sign them for anyone who wants them or just talk to you because he's a swell human being. Um, hello and welcome to the Living Room Sessions. Uh, tonight's special guest is Laura Dave, author of London is the Best City in America and The Divorce Party. Um, if you haven't read Laura's books, um, you're behind the curve, let me tell you. Uh, they're great books. They're they're funny. They're smart, but they're mostly just kind of spot on in terms of uh, their portrayals of the relationships among families, particularly brothers and sisters, but um, also intergenerational. Laura, jump in here at any point if, um, yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> okay, okay, um, and uh, so actually, I'm not going to go into any sort of uh, detail about her books because you need to read them and we'll talk about them. Um, but her most recent book is uh, called The Divorce Party, and it has been optioned for film by Jennifer Aniston's company. What is the name of her company? Um, Echo Films. Echo Films. Yeah, and your first book also was optioned. Yes. But, yeah, but by an actress less successful than Jennifer Aniston. But Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> Can we scroll back? Okay, so never mind. Um, I actually wanted to see, so we were talking, um, I, previously I had been talking to Michael Perry, another fine author of American literature, and um, he had a story about Christopher Moore, which was interesting to me because I already, when I talk to people who always ask me uh, about books and what I'm reading and what they should read, um, I actually lump you together with Christopher Moore. Really? Yeah, that's probably surprising to you. No, I, I well, it is, and I like hearing it. Thank uh, you. Well, because you, your writing, frankly, is nothing like him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, <laughs> why would you want to write anything like him? Um, I hate best-selling material. <laughs> no, the truth is that um, you two are in my book. You are in the same little filing system because you are the two authors that I know that have managed to write books fiction specifically, um, that allows you to spend inordinate amounts of time in beautiful places. I, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a good plan. Uh-huh. Um, well, clearly you do. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I try. I spend a lot of time researching, so I try to pick a place I want to be doing that research, and I tend to like towns um, sort of on the end of the world somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> end of the world, like um, Greenland. Yeah, end of the world, right. End of the world that I can drive to. Yeah. So like uh, Big Sur, California. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, where I can, you know, tell a very nice uh, hotel or end that I'm trying to work on a book and a nice innkeeper will say, take this room and stay here for a week and here's some cookies and it works out nicely. It's all about the cookies. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right. Well, so for those of you who haven't yet read it, the divorce party takes place uh, largely in Montauk, um, New York, out on the end of Long Island. And um, it's beautiful. 
and there's is it Huntington House? Is that what it's called? Huntington House, which Huntington is House. actually based on um, when I started researching the book. I started with the hurricane of 1938, and seven houses in the in the Montauk Association were some of the only houses that survived that that hurricane. One of which, the one on the furthest end, was called Tick Hall, uh, and it, Dick Cavett ended up buying that house later on, um, and it survived all these catastrophes. It survived that hurricane. It survived a huge fire. Actually, it did not survive right to the ground, and Dick Cavett and his wife rebuilt the house exactly as it had been in the 1800s, um, using old floor panels, everything, based on pictures of the house. And even though it took longer to do the banister that way, they just really wanted to preserve that house. And so I based Hunt Hall on Tick Hall um, and tried to figure out what, after a house survived so much, would bring it down, and I created this this party that two people wanted to have to celebrate the end of their marriage, the weekend that their son brings home his future wife to meet them for the first time. So there's no tension at all in your book. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit of discomfort, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have since become kind of a spokesperson for the whole divor- divorce party Movement. Yeah, that's an unfortunate side effect. Um, I actually started writing about the divorce party. Uh, I moved it into the book in a way because I heard on the radio a couple talking about having a divorce party and how it was very healing for them. They were two psychologists, and on the surface that sounded right. And then I heard in her voice anger, and I thought, "There's the rub. There's something going on." Two people who've lost something sacred are often in pain because that thing has been lost. And and to say otherwise, especially right away, especially before you're ready to say otherwise, is, is often at the very least contradictory. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I wonder, both of your books have incredibly intimate and I thought really, really vivid and good portrayals of brothers and sisters, which is not... I don't know. It's something. It's different than what I tend to read for some. And they're and it's both books. So now you've been branded. You're you're kind of you've boxed yourself in already. I'm boxed in. Uh huh. <laughs> um, and I wondered if you could talk about that. Like the question. You don't have to answer this question. But what I actually wondered was I was trying to imagine you writing about an only child. Yeah, that's a that's a something I think my brother would probably like. <laughs> <laughs> After the first book was about in, in the first book, the older brother, um, my brother's name is Jeff, and the brother's name was Josh, uh, deci- decided that uh, he wasn't sure if he wanted to get married 24 hours before his wedding, and the sister character ends up taking a road trip with him to find this woman he thinks he might love. Um, after that book came out, my brother was less than thrilled with me for a little while, especially when I started getting notes, and he started getting notes from people he used to be involved with wondering if this was true um so which it was not it was not but um in the second book i thought i didn't really have a uh i didn't set out to have a brother sister relationship and and yet it 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 appeared so in the new book uh there's a stepbrother but he doesn't have a big part so far so she is in a way an only child oh but you know what See, I'm trapped again because the man that sort of kills her at the beginning of the book has a sister who she's very close to the sister. So that brother-sister relationship is a strong part of the book. So, so I guess I don't have an only child yet. Hmm. And you're pretty old, right? With yeah, I'm pretty old. Yeah, just I was saying just yesterday I gave a reading in Austin and someone said to me, how old are you? And I said, I'm 31. And they go, oh, I thought you were young. And... <laughs> I didn't really know what to say to that exactly. <laughs> so. 
Um, just this side of washed up. Yeah, just this side. Uh, um, <laughs> it's good to meet you here. Right. Um, so I, you, you have been keeping a book of quotes since 1995. That is right. Are you still keeping that book of quotes? I am still. I'm on the third of... The, what would it be called? The third version of it? The third... Third volume? Volume. Third volume? The third yeah. volume of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. The publisher worries about that. <laughs> um, and so do you remember the most recent quote you put in? I'm trying to think of the most recent quote I put in. I think it was from a Mary Oliver poem, um, which it could have easily been from Scrubs, so I'm happy that that's the answer. <laughs> um, and it was from her her poem in, in the, uh, I'm going to say the poem wrong, in the woods uh, by the Blackwater, in the Blackwater woods. And it was the last few, I wrote down the whole poem, but I put it in because I love the last few lines, which is, um, in this life, I'm going to quote it wrong, but the, the sentiment behind it is, in this life, we have to hold what we can as tightly as we can and then be able to let it go, which I thought was really beautiful, and she said it much better. What do you, is there actually a function to this book, or is it just a repository? Like, Do you actually go to it for inspiration? or? You know, I, I think it really, a lot of these these quotes really stick with me and sometimes they end up being inspiring. Sometimes, you know, one of the quotes, which is one of my favorites, I actually just um, helped a friend who was writing a book. She used it as the epigraph at the beginning. They come back in lots of different ways. But for me, when something's striking me like that, I often don't know why at the time. And then later on, it, it ends up doing some, some good work for me. And I, it's also interesting for me to look back and think about what I was taking in at, at a various moment, which often is Scrubs. I really mm-hmm. do like that show. <laughs> yeah. You could possibly do a whole separate volume. <laughs> Just a Scrubs, yeah. a, sub, a subcategory. Exactly. Be like a chapbook. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know why I wonder this. So the thing, I don't know how to explain this without seeming um, in a way I don't want to seem. But um, <laughs> so we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> Uh, who is the most flattering author you've ever been p- compared to? The most fla- oh, you know, flattering to you. The most well, I've I've got I probably have two that are tied. One woman uh, who wrote a review of my book in London compared me compared the my, my book to The Great Gatsby, and that was a really nice day. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know anyone else who would say that. She's like, my mom said it too, and so then <laughs> she became my favorite reviewer ever. Um, and then the other person that I've been compared to, which also. Uh, well, you know, a couple I've gotten that meant a lot to me, but the other person that um, meant a lot to me was being compared to Joan Didion, which I don't, I didn't see, in, in that in that moment. But um, I'll take it, especially now that I'm reading uh, *Slouch and Bethlehem* for maybe the hundredth time, and I just think it's so awesome. Every yeah. time you read it, or every time I read it, it just matters to me more. Um, so. We we could talk here for a while. I know um, Laura a little bit from Powell's and such, but I know that no matter what we talk about, there's only one thing that you're going to remember and think about persistently after this night, and that's that. So first of all, I'll just give you a little context here. Laura was raised in New York and roots of the Red Sox. Yes. I'm- no. No, this. I just want to, for the, those listening on audio, there are people hissing in the audience, yes. and those people have been removed from the premises. 
But my point is that this is um, an indication of the brazen nature of Laura Dave um, and is perhaps enough to prepare us for the fact that when you are browsing in a bookstore, you read the first sentence of a book and you read... The last sentence. Always. Th those two. And everyone says, doesn't that ruin the book? And it never does for me. I, I really love a last sentence that feels like it has some sort of rhythm to it. I never know what it means, but... I know I want to read the book. I hate getting to the last sentence and being like, really? That's, that's, where, that's what I was doing here. So that always helps. And I think also music plays such a huge part in how I write and how I think about writing that sometimes when I hear that lilt at the end of something, I, I pretend that that's true of whoever was writing the book too. Have you ever felt like I'm, I'm done with that book? I've read the last sentence? Uh, you know, yeah, I have. <laughs> I have. I've read last sentences, and I'm like, okay, that's okay. I know what happened. I mean, once, it once, and I don't even remember the book, but it said something like, Anne Roberta died. And so then that was done for that book. But most of the time, it's not the case. Do you read your own books that way? Have you taken the time to actually look at first and last sentences? I, I have. I have taken the time to do that. Um, and, you know... It's interesting because one of the first things that got cut from my first book was my last sentence. So, you know, you can't plan these things always. Um, so we have red velvet cupcakes here from Cupcake Jones. Delicious. I'm looking, yes. I mean, amazing cupcakes. Hello, Cupcake Jones. Um, and they're really delicious, and I love them, and they're my favorite red velvet cupcakes in Portland. Um, but the reason we have them is because in the divorce party, a red velvet cake plays a very central role. And I don't know if you want to. Why don't you explain why red velvet cake is important? Uh, the couple who is finding themselves at the end of their union, Thomas and Gwen, the first night that they had their first date, they sat on the roof of her building in New York City and... Uh, she made them a red velvet cake. And they had a red velvet cake and what turned out to be a $26,000 bottle of wine. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was some night. And now that they're at the end, at the divorce party, they're having that same bottle of wine and another red velvet cake, which ends up playing a central role in both the night and the book. Mm -hmm. And so you have, over the course of, you know, talking to people about this book, you, have, you say you have sampled more than 160 mm -hmm. red velvet cakes around America. Yes, that is true. It is a tough job. Uh -huh. But I, I keep getting asked about red velvet cake, and a friend of mine who is a baker said to me, uh, you really need to try the cake everywhere now. It's, otherwise, it's not right to the cake. It's only fair to the cake. And so this is what I'm doing. And I have never heard or seen people so pa Maybe I've never looked, but people are so passionate about red velvet cake what kind of frosting should be on it, the cream cheese versus vanilla debate. I've been a part of several of those. Um, how red the cake should be is another question, and what uh, instrument you should be using to make the cake that red. Beet juice versus red dye versus cherries. I've heard a very strong argument for roasting strawberries. Lots of different things. I want to know how many times a week you have red velvet cake. I would say at least... Recently, at least two. I, ha I have some. For I try to have the mini cakes, such as this evening, which was an excellent red velvet cake. I do have to say, um, but uh, maybe two recently. That's yeah. th that's sort of new, as I've really been sort of touring around. When I'm in Los Angeles, one <laughs> still kind of high. <laughs> 
Well, do you want to maybe read a little bit, bit to give people? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll read. I'll read just a little little bit from uh, when we're meeting Gwen, whose husband is leaving um, leaving her, and he says he's converted to Buddhism. Uh, we find out shortly into the book that Buddhism is code for someone named Eve. <laughs> this is what she remembers. The first time she came to Montauk with Thomas to see where he lived, it was winter and it was freezing out. And she came down here to the edge of the property to this deep, deep cliff overlooking the beach below and stood here by herself watching as the sun slowly went down. She was barely 22 years old, shivering, but standing there on the cliff, she saw her life spread out before her. Or maybe that's too easy. Maybe what's closer to the truth is that for the first time, she saw something promising in her life something she didn't want to look away from. Even now, all these years later, she remembers how she felt looking out at the water. She remembers that this was when the place first became hers. Thomas had been so nervous to show her where he grew up. He'd already started to work at the free clinic out here, so he wasn't only showing her his past, he was showing her their future, if she decided to join him in it. They would live here at the end of the world, which at the time, in theory, felt romantic. But seeing it firsthand in the middle of a cold, cold winter felt like something more complex, closer to something he had once explained. You'll either love the quiet of Montauk or you won't be able to take it, and that will make all the difference. It will make all the difference in whether you can imagine this becoming your life, too. Thomas doesn't know this part. She went into town that first afternoon to get some fresh juice and called her sister from a payphone on the side of Old Montauk Highway. Wondering why it was that it took her until now to understand she was being asked to step into someone else's already chosen life or step out. What do you want from me? Her sister asked her. I want you to tell me that you like him, Gwen said. I want you to tell me that it will turn out okay. I like him, Gwen, her sister said, and it probably is not going to turn out okay. How can you know that? She asked her sister because you only ever ask me questions when you need to hear an answer you can't tell herself. Tell yourself. Then Jillian stopped giving any opinion. She reminded her instead of something her father did when they moved into that old colonial house in Macon, Gwen barely four years old, this house her parents would stay in until they died. He told the girls that when they grew up and found the place they wanted to make their home, they should find a safe spot there and make three wishes. They could count on three crumbing true, but only three, so they should wish carefully. Gwen's never told anyone what she wished for that night on the cliff, her first night in Montauk, or that she saved the third. She saved the third for the day she needed to wish to overcome something bigger than she could imagine, that one of her kids would get better, that the car accident wasn't insurmountable, that death wouldn't get to Thomas before her. But she's using it now by the edge of her cliff, this cliff looking down on it while it is still hers. Thomas was completely wrapped up in the first two, her wish that they would marry, her wish that they would have healthy, happy kids. Such average wishes, so unspecific. He may as well get this one too. She stands tall, breathes in the sky, the blue of it, the air collapsing and growing thinner around her. She doesn't feel it yet or can't name it yet, the storm that is brewing, but she feels something. Then she does it. One last time, she wishes he will be sorry. <laughs> I will refrain from um, 
digressing on that subject because Gwen's really interesting, actually. Like you, I mean, well, maybe I won't refrain. Um, <laughs> she's such a strong character in virtually every way, and she's in a very difficult place, and yet she's she's real. She doesn't feel contrived at all. And I just wondered. Obviously, there's so much emotion going on here. Uh, brief synopsis. Okay, so you have Maggie, who is meeting her prospective in-laws for the first time who are going through this divorce party and you have um, her fiance who has not told Maggie anything important about his past or his family. And then you have this couple who is, you know, uh, preparing for the divorce party and another child, Georgia, who's got um, challenges and conflicts of her own at the same time. And I just wondered with Gwen, there must have been a lot of kind of uh, tightrope walking with these characters because they're all in such precarious situations. And I think we could hate them or lose um, sympathy for them really easily. And we don't. Right. I think, I think it, I think it was a little tricky. I tried to just be really honest about where they were all coming from. And with Gwen, as I haven't been married for 35 years and didn't find myself in that situation. I spoke to about 50 women who found themselves 20 or 30 years into their marriage and really tried to understand when it was working for them and why it was working for them and when it wasn't and why it wasn't and really infuse Gwen with a lot of that and a lot of their hope and a lot of their sadness. And um, I think because of that, you forgive kind of that she's standing on the edge of crazy, especially as we get deeper into the book. How did you find those women? People love to talk. <laughs> I, people really, people always ask me that. You know, I speak to a lot of book clubs. A lot of um, these people have been generous enough to share their stories with me. And after my first book, I started getting a lot of letters about from men, surprisingly as well, asking me whether they should get married, whether they should get divorced, what was going on, and uh, you know that. That has that had ended up leading to a lot of confessions of different kinds. Thank you again, and um, I, I really do. You know, both Mike Perry and um, Laura Dave, their books are fantastic, and we've been thrilled to have them here. Um, Mike read at Powell's last night, and uh, Laura's here, and we will have her back as often as she will come. And um, I couldn't recommend their books more uh, more highly. So, thanks. Um, hello and welcome to the Living Room Sessions. Uh, tonight's special guest is Laura Dave, author of London is the Best City in America and The Divorce Party. Um, if you haven't read Laura's books, um, you're behind the curve, let me tell you. Uh, they're great books. They're, they're funny, they're smart, but they're mostly just kind of spot on in terms of uh, their portrayals of the relationships among families, particularly brothers and sisters, but um, also intergenerational. Laura, jump in here at any point. If um, Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and uh, so actually, I'm not going to go into any sort of uh, detail about her books because you need to read them and we'll talk about them. Um, but her most recent book is uh, called The Divorce Party, and it has been optioned for film by Jennifer Aniston's company. What is the name of her company? Um, Echo Films. Echo Films. Yeah, and your first book also was optioned. Yes. But, yeah, but by an actress less successful than Jennifer Aniston. But Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar! 
Can we scroll back? <laughs> uh, okay, so never mind. Um, I actually wanted to see, so we were talking, um, I, previously I had been talking to Michael Perry, another fine author of American literature, and um, he had a story about Christopher Moore, which was interesting to me because I already, when I talk to people who always ask me uh, about books and what I'm reading and what they should read, um, I actually lump you together with Christopher Moore. Really? Yeah, that's probably surprising to you. No, I, well, it is, and I like hearing it. Thank uh, you. Well, because you, your writing, frankly, is nothing like him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, <laughs> why would you want to write anything like him? Um, I hate best-selling material. <laughs> no, the truth is that um, you two are in my book. You are in the same little filing system because you are the two authors that I know that have managed to write books fiction specifically, um, that allows you to spend inordinate amounts of time in beautiful places. I, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a good plan. Uh-huh. Um, well, clearly you do. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I try. I spend a lot of time researching, so I try to pick a place I want to be doing that research. And I tend to like towns um, sort of on the end of the world somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> end of the world, like um, Greenland. Yeah, end of the world, right. End of the world that I can drive to. Yeah. So like uh, Big Sur, California. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, where I can, you know, tell a very nice uh, hotel or end that I'm trying to work on a book and a nice innkeeper will say, take this room and stay here for a week and here's some cookies and it works out nicely. It's all about the cookies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right. Well, so for those of you who haven't yet read it, the divorce party takes place uh, largely in Montauk, um, New York, out on the end of Long Island. And um, it's beautiful. And there's, is it Huntington House? Is that what it's called? The Huntington House, which Huntington is House. actually based on um, when I started researching the book, I started with the hurricane of 1938. And seven houses in the in the Montauk Association were some of the only houses that survived that that hurricane, one of which, the one on the furthest end, was called Tick Hall, uh, and it, Dick Cavett ended up buying that house later on, um, and it survived all these catastrophes. It survived that hurricane. It survived a huge fire. Actually, it did not survive right to the ground, and Dick Cavett and his wife rebuilt the house exactly as it had been in the 1800s, um, using old floor panels, everything, based on pictures of the house. And even though it took longer to do the banister that way, they just really wanted to preserve that house. And so I based Hunt Hall on Tick Hall um, and tried to figure out what, after a house survived so much, would bring it down. And I created this this party that two people wanted to have to celebrate the end of their marriage, the weekend that their son brings home his future wife to meet them for the first time. So there's no tension at all in your book. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit of discomfort, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have since become kind of a spokesperson for the whole divorce party movement. Yeah, that's an unfortunate side effect. Um, I actually started writing about the divorce party. Uh, I moved it into the book in a way because I heard on the radio a couple talking about having a divorce party and how it was very healing for them. They were two psychologists and... On the surface, that sounded right, and then I heard in her voice anger, and I thought, there's the rub. There's something going on. Two people who've lost something sacred are often in pain because that thing has been lost, and and to say otherwise, especially right away, especially before you're ready to say otherwise, is, is often at the very least contradictory. Mm-hmm. So... 
Um, I, I, I wonder, both of your books have incredibly intimate and I thought just really, really vivid and good portrayals of brothers and sisters, which is not, I don't know, it's something, it's different than what I tend to read for some reason. And, and it's both books, so now you've been branded. You're, you're kind of, you've boxed yourself in already? I'm boxed in. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I wondered if you could talk about that. Like the question, you don't have to answer this question, but what I actually wondered, I was trying to imagine you writing about an only child. That's a, that's a, something I think my brother would probably like. <laughs> um, after the first book was about, in, in the first book, the older brother, um, my brother's name is Jeff and the brother's name was Josh, uh, deci- decided that uh, he wasn't sure if he wanted to get married 24 hours before his wedding. And the sister character ends up taking a road trip with him to find this woman he thinks he might love. Um, after that book came out, my brother was less than thrilled with me for a little while, especially when I started getting notes and he started getting notes from people he used to be involved with wondering if this was true. Um, so, it, Which it was not. It was not. But um, in the second book, I thought I didn't really have a... Uh, I didn't set out to have a brother-sister relationship, and, and yet it, it, it appeared. So in the new book, uh, there's a stepbrother, but he doesn't have a big part so far. So she is, in a way, an only child. Oh, but you know what? See, I'm trapped again because the man that sort of kills her at the beginning of the book has a sister who she's very close to the sister. So that brother-sister relationship is a strong part of the book. So so I guess I don't have an only child yet. Hmm. And you're pretty old, right? Yeah. Just- <laughs> I'm pretty old. Yeah, just, I was saying just yesterday I gave a reading in Austin and someone said to me, how old are you? And I said, I'm 31. And they go, oh, I thought you were young. And... <laughs> I didn't really know what to say to that exactly. <laughs> so. um, just this side of washed up. Yeah, just this side. Uh, um, <laughs> it's good to meet you here. <laughs> right. um, so I, you, you have been keeping a book of quotes since 1995. That is right. Are you still keeping that book of quotes? I am still. I'm on the third, uh, the, what would it be called? The third version of it? The third, third volume? Volume. Third volume? The third yeah. volume of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. The publisher worries about that. Um, <laughs> And so do you remember the most recent quote you put in? I'm trying to think of the most recent quote I put in. I think it was from a Mary Oliver poem, um, which it could have easily been from Scrubs, so I'm happy that that's the answer. Um, and it was from her, her poem in, in the, uh, I'm going to say the poem wrong, in the woods uh, by the Blackwater, in the Blackwater woods. And it was the last few, I wrote down the whole poem, but... I put it in because I love the last few lines, which is, um, in this life, I'm going to quote it wrong, but the, the sentiment behind it is, in this life, we have to hold what we can as tightly as we can and then be able to let it go, which I thought was really beautiful, and she said it much better. What do you, is there actually a function to this book, or is it just a repository? Like, Do you actually go to it for inspiration? or? You know, I, I think it really, a lot of these these quotes really stick with me and sometimes they end up being inspiring. Sometimes, you know, one of the quotes, which is one of my favorites, I actually just um, helped a friend who was writing a book. She used it as the epigraph at the beginning. They come back in lots of different ways. But for me, when something's striking me like that, I often don't know why at the time. And then later on, it, it ends up doing some, some good work for me. And I, it's also interesting for me to look back and think about what I was taking in at, at a various moment, which often is Scrubs. I really mm-hmm. do like that show. <laughs> yeah. 
You could possibly do a whole separate volume. <laughs> Just a scrubs, a no. sub, a subcategory. Exactly. Be like a chapbook. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know why I wonder this. So the thing, I don't know how to explain this without seeming um, in a way I don't want to seem. But um, <laughs> so we'll move on to the next question. <laughs> uh, who is the most flattering author you've ever been compared to? The most fl- oh you know flattering to you the most well I've I've got I probably have two that are tied one woman uh, who wrote a review of my book in London compared me compared the my, my book to The Great Gatsby and that was a really nice day and I was like I don't know I don't know anyone else who would say that she's like my mom said it too and so then <laughs> she became my favorite reviewer ever um, and then the other person that I've been compared to which also uh, well, you know, a couple I've gotten that meant a lot to me, but the other person that um, meant a lot to me was being compared to Joan Didion, which I don't, I didn't see, in, in that in that moment. But um, I'll take it, especially now that I'm reading uh, *Slaughter Change for Bethlehem* for maybe the hundredth time, and I just think it's so awesome. Every yeah. time you read it, or every time I read it, it just matters to me more. Um, so. We we could talk here for a while. I know um, Laura a little bit from Powell's and such, but I know that no matter what we talk about, there's only one thing that you're going to remember and think about persistently after this night, and that's that. Except first of all, I'll just give you a little context here. Laura was raised in New York and roots for the Red Sox. Yes. No. No, this. I just want to, for the, those listening on audio, there are people hissing in the audience, yes. and those people have been removed from the premises. <laughs> but my point is that this is um, an indication of the brazen nature of Laura Dave, um, and is perhaps enough to prepare us for the fact that when you are browsing in a bookstore, you read the first sentence of a book, and you read... The last sentence. Always. Those two. And everyone says, doesn't that ruin the book? And it never does for me. I, I really love a last sentence that feels like it has some sort of rhythm to it. I never know what it means, but it, I know I want to read the book. I hate getting to the last sentence and being like, really? That's, that's, where, that's what I was doing here. So that always helps. And I think also music plays such a huge part in how I write and how I think about writing that sometimes when I hear that lilt at the end of something, I... I pretend that that's true of whoever is writing the book, too. Have you ever felt like I'm I'm done with that book? I've read the last sentence. Uh, you know, yeah, I have. <laughs> I have. I've read last sentences, and I'm like, okay, that's okay. I know what happened. I mean, once, it re- once and I don't even remember the book, but it said something like, Anne Roberta died. And so then that was done for that book. But most of the time, it's not the case. Do you read your own books that way? Have you taken the time to actually look at first and last sentences? I, I have. I have taken the time to do that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because one of the first things that got cut from my first book was my last sentence. So, you know, you can't plan these things always. <laughs> Um, so we have red velvet cupcakes here from Cupcake Jones. Delicious. I'm looking, yes. I mean, amazing cupcakes. Hello, Cupcake Jones. Um, and they're really delicious, and I love them, and they're my favorite red velvet cupcakes in Portland. Um, 
But the reason we have them is because in the divorce party, a red velvet cake plays a very central role. And I don't know if you want to. Why don't you explain why red velvet cake is important? Uh, the couple who is finding themselves at the end of their union, Thomas and Gwen, the first night that they had their first date, they sat on the roof of her building in New York City and uh, she made them a red velvet cake. And they had a red velvet cake and what turned out to be a $26,000 bottle of wine. <laughs> So that was uh, that was some night. And now that they're at the end, at the divorce party, they're having that same bottle of wine and another red velvet cake, which ends up playing a central role in both the night and the book. Mm-hmm. And so you have, over the course of, you know, talking to people about this book, you have you say you have sampled more than 160 mm-hmm. red velvet cakes around America. Yes, that is true. It is a tough job. Uh-huh. But... <laughs> I, I keep getting asked about red velvet cake, and a friend of mine who is a baker said to me, uh, you really need to try the cake everywhere now, it's, otherwise it's not right to the cake. It's only fair to the cake, and so this is what I'm doing. And I have never heard or seen people so, pa- maybe I've never looked, but people are so passionate about red velvet cake. What kind of frosting should be on it? The cream cheese versus vanilla debate. I've been a part of several of those. Um, how red the cake should be is another question. And what uh, instrument you should be using to make the cake that red. Beet juice versus red dye versus cherries. I've heard a very strong argument for roasting strawberries. Lots of different things. I want to know how many times a week you have red velvet cake. I would say at least... Recently, at least two. I, ha- I have some. For- I try to have the mini cakes, such as this evening, which was an excellent red velvet cake. I do have to say, um, but uh, maybe two recently. That's yeah. th- that's sort of new, as I've really been sort of touring around. When I'm in Los Angeles, one <laughs> still kind of high. <laughs> well, do you want to maybe read a little bit, bit to give people? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll read, I'll read just a little little bit from uh, when we're meeting Gwen, whose husband is leaving, um, leaving her, and he says he's converted to Buddhism. Uh, we find out shortly into the book that Buddhism is code for someone named Eve. <laughs> this is what she remembers. Oops. The first time she came to Montauk with Thomas to see where he lived, it was winter and it was freezing out. And she came down here to the edge of the property to this deep, deep cliff overlooking the beach below and stood here by herself watching as the sun slowly went down. She was barely 22 years old, shivering, but standing there on the cliff, she saw her life spread out before her. Or maybe that's too easy. Maybe what's closer to the truth is that for the first time, she saw something promising in her life, something she didn't want to look away from. Even now, all these years later, she remembers how she felt looking out at the water. She remembers that this was when the place first became hers. Thomas had been so nervous to show her where he grew up. He'd already started to work at the free clinic out here, so he wasn't only showing her his past, he was showing her their future, if she decided to join him in it. They would live here at the end of the world, which at the time, in theory, felt romantic, but seeing it firsthand in the middle of a cold, cold winter felt like something more complex, closer to something he had once explained. You'll either love the quiet of Montauk or you won't be able to take it, and that will make all the difference. It will make all the difference in whether you can imagine this becoming your life too. Thomas doesn't know this part. 
She went into town that first afternoon to get some fresh juice and called her sister from a payphone on the side of Old Montauk Highway, wondering why it was that it took her until now to understand she was being asked to step into someone else's already chosen life or step out. What do you want from me? Her sister asked her. I want you to tell me that you like him, Gwen said. I want you to tell me that it will turn out okay. I like him, Gwen, her sister said, and it probably is not going to turn out okay. How can you know that? She asked her sister. Because you only ever ask me questions when you need to hear an answer you can't tell herself. Tell yourself. Then Jillian stopped giving any opinion. She reminded her instead of something her father did when they moved into that old colonial house in Macon, Gwen barely four years old, this house her parents would stay in until they died. He told the girls that when they grew up and found the place they wanted to make their home, they should find a safe spot there and make three wishes. They could count on three crumbing true, but only three, so they should wish carefully. Gwen's never told anyone what she wished for that night on the cliff, her first night in Montauk, or that she saved the third. She saved the third for the day she needed to wish to overcome something bigger than she could imagine, that one of her kids would get better, that the car accident wasn't insurmountable, that death wouldn't get to Thomas before her. But she's using it now by the edge of her cliff, this cliff, looking down on it while it is still hers. Thomas was completely wrapped up in the first two, her wish that they would marry, her wish that they would have healthy, happy kids. Such average wishes, so unspecific. He may as well get this one too. She stands tall, breathes in the sky, the blue of it, the air collapsing and growing thinner around her. She doesn't feel it yet or can't name it yet, the storm that is brewing, but she feels something. Then she does it. One last time, she wishes he will be sorry. <laughs> I will refrain from um, digressing on that subject because Gwen's really interesting, actually. Like you, I mean, well, maybe I won't refrain. Um, <laughs> she's such a strong character in virtually every way, and she's in a very difficult place, and yet she's, she's real. She doesn't feel contrived at all, and I just wondered... Obviously, there's so much emotion going on here. Uh, brief synopsis. Okay, so you have Maggie, who is meeting her prospective in-laws for the first time, who are going through this divorce party, and you have um, her fiancé, who has not told Maggie anything important about his past or his family. And then you have this couple who is, you know, uh, preparing for the divorce party, and another child, Georgia, who's got... Um, challenges and conflicts of her own at the same time. And I just wondered with Gwen, there must have been a lot of kind of uh, tightrope walking with these characters because they're all in such precarious situations. And I think we could hate them or lose um, sympathy for them really easily. And we don't. Right. I think, I think it, I think it was a little tricky. I tried to just be really honest about where they were all coming from and with Gwen as I haven't been married for 35 years and didn't find myself in that situation I spoke to about 50 women who found themselves 20 or 30 years into their marriage and really tried to understand when it was working for them and why it was working for them and when it wasn't and why it wasn't and really infuse Gwen with a lot of that and a lot of their hope and a lot of their sadness and um, I think because of that you forgive kind of that she's standing on the edge of crazy, especially as we get deeper into the book. How did you find those women? 
people love to talk. <laughs> I, people really, people always ask me that. You know, I speak to a lot of book clubs. A lot of um, these people have been generous enough to share their stories with me. And after my first book, I started getting a lot of letters about from men, surprisingly as well, asking me whether they should get married, whether they should get divorced, what was going on, and uh, you know that. That has that had ended up leading to a lot of confessions of different kinds. Thank you again, and um, I, I really do. You know, both Mike Perry and um, Laura Dave, their books are fantastic, and we've been thrilled to have them here. Uh, Mike read at Powell's last night, and uh, Laura's here, and we will have her back as often as she will come. And um, I couldn't recommend their books more uh, more highly. So, thanks. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.